Welcome back to the podcast. Today it's Saturday, 21st of September, 1946. Bet has lots of news about big excitement in Nanchang as the visit from President Chiang Kai-shek, the Generalissimo, is expected at any time. In the meantime, while they're waiting, she fills us in on an adventure the other day to investigate allegations of a black market operation in the ward-torn city of Khao An. In the middle of that tale, the Generalissimo arrives, but let's hear all of this from Bet. Mrs. Betty Souter, Unra Nanchang, Changsi, 21st of September 1946. Dearest mother, dad and girls, the whole of Nanchang, including Unra House, is buzzing with excitement for we think, repeat think, that the Generalissimo will definitely be arriving today. He has been arriving now for quite two months, but the glorious cool mountain air of cooling has no doubt caused all the alterations in his plans and the consequent flutterings in this city. Be that as it may, the air was electric here for an hour or so this morning while the girls all put on the glad rags and the glamour and the men cursed at the prospect of wearing ties. We were all ready and waiting on the front porch at the stroke of noon and the jeeps were lined up with the official stickers on the windscreen. We were to receive a telephone call from the government building as soon as the Generalissimo, here and after I shall refer to him as Gimo, plane left Ku Chang. And then we were to clamour into the jeeps and make straight for the airfield. At the stroke of noon, a message came through to the following effect. Gmo is having tiffin on the mountain and will be down later on, or something equally vague. We decided that we'd better have our tiffin too. We did. Anne, Mona and Charlotte looked quite outstanding sitting there with their cute flowery hats on. Unra Hostel usually sees its female inmates stockingless and hatless, the rest of us women had shaken the moths out of our uniforms and gave a semblance of military organisation as we sat around the table. It is now only 1pm and I can think of nothing better to do than write you a few more of the highlights that go to make my life in China a rather peculiar experience. I'm quite expecting that I'll be here at my desk for the rest of the afternoon because there's no doubt another of the GMO false alarms but we came pretty close to it this time. Anticipation is always fun, even when nothing eventuates. I had a pleasant little trip yesterday. Our inspector, by name Algernon Lushington, Australian, young veteran of Greece and Crete, ex-POW, popularly called Lush, wanted to check on a rumour that the black market in used clothing was flourishing in Cow Anne a city situated about 35 or 38 miles southwest from here. So he got out a jeep, and I decided to go with him. Marge Block got permission to come too, and we took David Wu, the Chinese cashier in our office, as interpreter. The morning was unusually cool, overcast, but most pleasant. We left the hostel at about 9am. The road is not too bad, and we could average the 30 miles per hour without too many bumps in the back seat. In case of emergency, we packed some sandwiches and boiled eggs into the glove box and carried our water canteens. One dreadful oversight was the failure to put the usual few cans of beer under the front seat, but 
It was not a very hot day. No one blamed anyone else over much. Kaohan is said to be the most devastated city in Changxi, and I am quite prepared to believe that assertion. It is almost eerie to drive into the outer city on the near side of the river, where the road is bordered by shells of buildings, now overgrown with the grasses and shrubs that have had the long eight years in which to flourish. It appears that the Japs did not actually meet much fighting in Kaohan, but that they used the city to provide fuel for Changxi occupation armies. Anything at all that was flammable was torn from the houses, shops, temples and offices. In the efforts at rebuilding some kind of cover for the returning inhabitants, many ruins have been further despoiled to provide building materials. It is truly a ghost town and most pitiful to see. We had to leave the jeep outside the city wall because the bridge over the river within the boundaries of the wall is impassable. The former stone bridge was torn away with the object of breaking communications and only the three massive stone piers remain looking in the distance like three great cruisers pushing up the stream. The present bridge, a temporary affair of course, is a pontoon bridge made with a series of junks across which a wooden carriageway has been built. The pontoon bridge would be passable for a jeep if it were not for the gaps here and there where a junk has broken from the moorings or sunk, leaving a stretch across the river with narrow planks for pedestrians only. I was a trifle apprehensive when it came to these gaps with narrow planks only, but on seeing a blind man negotiating these parts quite confidently with the aid of two knobbly walking sticks, I gained courage. We crossed the river then and walked up the long stone steps to enter the main street of the city. By this time, our crowd of followers had already started to gather around us. The street was about ten feet wide, no more, and paved with large, flat stones. The drainage flows down the very centre of the street, where gaps between the paving stones indicate the drainage gutter underneath. It is, though, a clean city, and all the shops and houses along the street look well-kept and quite clean, though primitive, and extremely crude in both construction and furnishings. We walked some 300 yards along this street, causing much consternation and not a little amusement to the inhabitants, then turned left along another similar street until we came to the Sunra office. The Sunra office in Kaohan is one of the field districts that I have mentioned in some of my earlier letters. It is in the charge of a captain who has the assistance of about five or six other Chinese men. None of these could speak English, so David had a busy time. Lush had many questions to ask concerning the supplies being received and their manner of distribution. The earlier part of the proceedings brought no special interest for me, so Marge and I went off for half an hour or so along the streets to see what was what. We also had to find mm, a place... Always extremely difficult in Chinese towns since they do not seem to cater for women at all and men are accustomed to use the sidewalk or any other available place and after shaking off a couple of hundred followers by almost galloping around three or four sidetracks and saying, to hell with these two or three that will not be sidetracked, we found a suitable ruin. On returning to the Sunra office, we found Lush and David still very much engrossed, but since a huge bowl of peanuts and some boiled water was put in front of us, we decided to stay. We enjoyed the peanuts very much. An anxious-faced, tow-headed boy 
looked in through the window every now and again to sum up the peanut situation and estimate when it might be time for him to run off and buy another catty or two. Oh yes, in case you did not know, a catty is the equivalent of exactly 1.1023112 pounds. The mayor had to be called in. Also the local doctor, Sunra, and the secretary of something or other, We didn't really want to see them for anything special, but they would have come anyway, so that was that. At about 12.30, we were informed that lunch had been prepared, and would we do them the honour of eating it? We did. Chinese meal, of course, but not a feast, thank goodness. We had been warned about letting them know that we would be going out to visit them. There were five dishes, one soup in the centre of the table, one fish, one meat, one vegetable and one chicken. The dreadful bygarm was lined up for us, a most potent white wine, which is not really pleasant to taste, and which just takes the roof off your head just to sip it. They soon gathered that we were not prepared to drink the dreadful Jimbo juice and substituted a sweet banana wine, which was not too bad. We hurried through as quickly as etiquette would permit, only to find that another superintendent someone and a secretary someone else had turned up for introduction. Lush got rid of them pretty quickly and off we went. The captain wanted to take us to the hilltop at the city gate where we could get a good view of the city, so he accompanied us. Before proceeding to the hilltop, though, we called at one of the shops where used clothing was being displayed for sale and also at the hotel where we had heard that the proprietor was doing some big business out of relief goods. It is impossible to find out anything, of course, and Lush maintains that his job consists of writing reports that no suspicious acts could be discovered. But we find that the very act of him making the inquiries has a frightening effect on the people who are guilty and scares them from the illegal pursuits for a while. The Hotel Akawan is really something. You will remember my complaints about the Garden Hotel at Kuchiang. I must say that the garden is a palace compared to this dump. In the first place, it smells like a barn, not a nice clean barn with sweet-smelling hay and tangy pinewood rafters, but mouldy and damp with the odour of cattle, stale, dirty straw, and things that go with it. How any European could stay there was more than I could understand. I do take my hat off to Don Campbell, one of our Unra highwaymen, who was posted in Kawam for nearly four months and had to live there. I'm sure that I would have been driven out of the city each night and camped in the open rather than stay in that place. It is difficult to describe. We walked through an archway of stone, remnant of a former building, and on stone pavement until we came into the main square of the hotel with ordinary hard mud floor and timber roof with a few patchy tiles showing gaps of sky between them. This square, or rather rectangle, would be about 50 feet wide and 100 feet long. The few private rooms were partitioned off along the sides. I believe that Don had one of these. The roof, unlined, was gabled in three gables at the back and three at the front, and where the gutter would be in a gabled roof of ours, there was open space, so that the rainwaters would run straight down inside the building onto the brick wells, that are specifically built to receive the water. No doubt they use this water for all purposes. The wells are, of course, quite open and give the impression of crude fish ponds in the middle of the construction. All is dingy and dark, 
and that smell. By the time we emerged from the hotel and were ready to go to said hilltop, at this stage, the GMO did actually arrive, and on that I will write more in a moment to return to my story. By the time we emerged from the hotel and we were ready to go to said hilltop, a crowd of some 200 or more had gathered with the small boys representing quite three-fourths of our following to the fore, Marge claimed that she felt like the Pied Piper, and I had to agree with her. It was especially reminiscent of the tale of the charm flute when we pattered down only two or three abreast, descending the cobbled steps before crossing again to the pontoon bridge and climbing the bank on the other side again to the city wall. The little boys danced along with great glee, chattering and babbling in their elusive tongue, pausing now and again to goggle at the white-faced women, especially the great tall one. Marge closely approximates six feet. We went through the city gates and walked through the ghost town streets for about half a mile to the foot of a low hill which we climbed in single file, winding around the narrow path with easy ascent. Our little boys followed all the way, a regular string of them along the tall grasses, dodging around to find the best tracks, shouting and clapping. It was fun. We viewed the city from the hilltop, I with some resentment at the innate destructiveness of men. As we descend, I picked a bright red flower from the grasses. My action was a signal. Some fifteen or twenty small boys promptly scattered amongst the grasses and soon emerged, all with red flowers in sight. We found our way back to the jeep, which was by now well surrounded with a gaping crowd. As we clambered in and started up the engine, the crowd, together with our cortege of small boys, stopped gaping and burst into noisy and enthusiastic clapping. One feels rather at a loss in such circumstances, not knowing what it is really all about. However, we smiled brightly, inclined our heads, waved gaily, and chatted, Shishi, shishi, bukutch, bukutch, etc. And so we said farewell to ruined Cowan, the city of fallen walls, small boys, and cobbled streets. Third of September, 1946. These intervening days have been filled with action and excitement, and I trust that I'll be able to remember most of the incidents of general interest. As mentioned, in the midst of my chatter of Kawan, the GMO arrived. The telephone rang, and we hurled ourselves into the jeeps and made for the airport, five miles out from town. All the traffic of Nanchang turned out for doings, and dust curled along the roads while people thronged to the sidewalks. As we drew near the drome, a Piper Cub came over low, flying red and blue streamers, indicating that the GMO was actually on the way. A siren blew for five long minutes, warning the town to come out if they wanted to be in time to see the big boss. Such a flutter. At the airport, we parked the jeep in one of the hangars, where all the traffic of Nanchang, as aforesaid, was gradually congregating and joined the expectant groups around the main waiting room. The governor was there, of course, and the mayor, and the government heads, and four pretty dark schoolgirls with bunches of zinnias, the town band, an armed guard of the best Chinese soldiery, 
the Sunra heads, the city elders, including a charming-looking old gentleman with long flowing beard wearing black silk jacket over his full-length long grey Chinese gown, and all members of the Unra Changxi Regional Office. After standing around for an hour or more, word came through that Jimo's plane had taken off from Kyu Chang, whereupon the governor did a spot of organising and the Guard of Honour was formed. It was indeed a very great honour for the Unra people to be placed at the very head of the Guard, immediately beside the band. We stood in single file along the pathway leading from the gate at the entrance to the field, back to the reception room and the parked car, which was to take the Jimo to the government building where he was to stay. For about half an hour we waited like that, all watching the dark sky coming over, listening for the first clap of thunder which seemed inevitable, and then we saw the Douglas coming into view closer and closer until it hovered over the field and came down to a perfect landing, taxing along to the gateway. The Generalissimo stepped from his plane to receive the flowers from the girls and be received by a small group, including the governor and the gentleman with the flowing beard. Just as he emerged from the plane, the band had struck up with its military music, good, snappy, uplifting music, and the general flutter amongst the waiting crowds reached an even higher pitch than before. The President of China came through the gateway, smiling, carrying his stick in one hand and his felt hat in the other. He walked at the head of the reception group, glancing graciously all along his welcoming guard of honour. He is indeed a charming and dignified gentleman. Though small in stature, his presence is arresting. Having walked the length of his guard, the Jimo was then shown to his car and started the triumphal procession. We all scattered back to the hangar and our jeeps and soon caught up with the lineup. Before starting on our procession, though, I must mention that I have never in my life seen such a funny sight as the traffic moving out of that hangar. Noise, action, cars, people, soldiers, hooting, shouting, near misses, a few hits. Confusion. Lots of confusion. A perfect scream. No organisation, but gradual achievement. Chinese drivers are, at one and the same time, the worst and the best drivers in the world. They get places and avoid serious accident. That must mean they are good. They whirl around corners and go sideways, ignoring all rules. That makes them bad. But, as I have said, they get places. The procession was an eye-opener. For the whole length of the five miles, the streets were lined with people, mostly in groups. There were groups of Boy Scouts, groups of employees of different offices, groups of nurses, groups of school children, groups of missionaries, etc. Very few policemen or military police were in sight, but not once did I see the people break through their lines. It was more orderly than any procession I've ever seen in Sydney, and quite as enthusiastic. Flags and banners were in sight everywhere, and it was obvious that every onlooker, even those in the coolie class, had taken special care of his or her appearance for the event. The absence of women amongst the general crowd outside the special groups of schoolgirls, nurses, girl guides and such like, was noticeable. But then we must remember that the place of a Chinese woman is definitely in and about the home. 
The most gratifying part of the day's events, from Unra point of view, was the reception accorded to the Unra jeeps. The cheering was terrific as we came into view. Ding hao! came from every corner, and hands were clapped for us and flags waved. If there was any doubt in any of our minds previously as to our popularity here, then it was forever discarded during that procession. I really felt most happy about it. It was so spontaneous, quite of their own accord. Other cars ahead and behind did not get the claps and cheers, so we knew that they understood what we represented. Yes, indeed, we all felt most encouraged after that drive. The procession ended at the government building where the GMO was to stay. We drove on home to chatter with enthusiasm over the afternoon occurrences. On that same evening, we were all invited as guests of the president to attend the Chinese drama at the government building auditorium. Most of us went along, and again UNRWA found itself in a position of honour. We enjoyed the privilege of front seats alongside the GMO. The drama was specially good, though, as usual, noisy. I had a Chinese friend sitting beside me, a young architect attached to UNRWA city planning section, so I was able to follow everything well. There were four different plays, very well dressed and very well acted. I did enjoy it immensely. It sure was a day of excitement. Yesterday, Mr. and Mrs. Duncan and Colin Williams, our second in command here, were invited to tea and yet again found themselves very honoured guests, Molly Duncan, sitting at the GMO's right hand. And again last night were invited to the drama, the last of the social gatherings to be held. The president leaves for Nanking this morning. A most satisfying few days. At this point, I think that I must leave you. Something accomplished, something done. That is how we are feeling. But we must keep on with the good work. And so I get on now with the daily reports. Lovingly, Bet. Production credits for this episode. Produced and narrated by Warren Henry, the voice of Betty Souter by Helen Polkinghorne, and the featured tune from 1946, Hawaiian War Chant, performed by Spike Jones and his Wacky Wakakians. away from the shore and our boat sinks slowly in the west we approach the island of lulu <coughs> spelled backwards <coughs> ul, ul. ah in the distance we hear spike jones and his wacky wackakians <laughs> Oh, wait. 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 O